The Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. So I get a telephone call from David Biedney, my co-host, and he says, Gene, you don't mind handling the show this week by yourself, do you? I said, what's up? Well, he says, he's going to a Radiohead concert. Okay. You know, Radiohead is the famous British rock group and all that. Okay, so David isn't with us, but we still have a wonderful show and a lot of interesting things to talk about. And one is the possibility of an alien invasion. Are we ready for that? Well, there's a book out called Planetary Defense, a study of modern warfare applied to extraterrestrial invasion. And one of the authors, Dr. Travis Taylor, who has a a pack of degrees, unheard of. (laughs) He has an incredible amount of experience and knowledge and training. He's going to talk to us about whether we're ready to deal with a new kind of war in the 21st century. And then we got a letter from one of our listeners asking about the Philadelphia experiment. Why don't we have something on it? Now, before I go on, let me tell you, if you do have a comment or a question about the show, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. Or go to our website, theparacast.com, to post your comment in our forums. So I called up Brad Steiger, author of over 160 books, and I said, Brad, Tell us about the Philadelphia experiment, real, a real experiment in invisibility back in World War II, or a fantasy. You'll hear more this week on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes. But the truth remains hidden, and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history, and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You are in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Travis, as co-author of this new book, Planetary Defense, a study of modern warfare applied to extraterrestrial invasion, do you actually feel there is any chance at all that we could be invaded by beings from outer space? Well, you know, that's the most important question to ask, I guess. And so we are devoted the entire first chapter of the book to answering that question. And we actually believe that uh, the general public has sort of been, I don't want to say sold a bill of goods by the uh, popular science gurus such as Carl Sagan and uh, Frank Drake and some of those guys about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. But uh, we go through and show that statistically the odds of there being extraterrestrial intelligences are a lot higher than people uh, want to expect. To start with, we know that there are... Uh, all sorts of stars in the sky. We see uh, there's about 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone, 
And we also have recently learned that planets are the garbage that's left over when a star is formed. So as you look at all the stars in the sky, there's most likely planets formed around them, and that's just a byproduct of the process of a star being created. And now recently also we've discovered four planetoid-type bodies in our own solar system that have water on their surface or somewhere on them, like Europa, for example, has a huge deep ocean that's covered by uh, glaciers of ice. And it's very volcanic because it's real close to Jupiter and the gravitational forces are pulling on it. And so there are probably volcano traps at the bottom of this ocean that are creating uh, chemosynthetic life like we have at the bottom of our ocean. The lava tube worms and think creatures that, that you uh, see on some of your uh, like National Geographic and things of that nature. Then the moon, we believe we've detected water in some of the bottoms of craters uh, on it that never see the sun. The Lunar Prospector and both Clementine uh, missions that went to the moon uh, most recently uh, have detected extreme amounts of hydrogen and oxygen that shouldn't be there, which would only be there if there was water ice inside those craters. Uh, there's recently been a moon of Saturn that's been found to have actual geysers, and uh, we've actually got pictures from the Mars orbiting camera of glaciers of ice. Some of it's carbon uh, dioxide and carbon monoxide, but a majority of it, or, or some major portion of it, is water ice. And, and there are some pictures that show actual lakes, or appear to be lakes, of water, then uh, there's likely that any or all of these may have some sort of microbial life in it here in our solar system alone. So it's likely that life isn't just isn't as rare as you think. It's it's a byproduct of stars forming. And we go through and show that there's a statistical probability when you do the math right that there should be more than a few tens of stars in our galaxy alone that should have intelligent life, and as many as many thousands or hundreds of thousands that, that might. Well, of course, this gets to raise a larger issue. We're talking on the Paracast with Dr. Travis Taylor, and he's co-author of a provocative new book called Planetary Defense, A Study of Modern Warfare Applied to Extraterrestrial Invasion. And of course, the first thing one has to discuss before we decide how to defend ourselves if course is the issue of whether or not we're being visited and whether or not we have the potential for invasion so okay we have the possibility of microbial life on some of the moons in other planets of the solar system how do we extend that to the possibility that there are intelligent life forms that number one are close enough in the galactic neighborhood to want to get here number two if they got here if they are here would want to invade us that's uh Another good good question. And again, that's what the whole first chapter of this uh, the book is about: is see, is there really a likelihood of this happening? We wanted to look at this from a pure science mathematical standpoint to say, you know, is this really worth happening? You see it in science fiction genre all the time, and me also being a science fiction writer, I've actually used that as plot uh, mechanisms. The scientific value of saying we're going to be invaded by aliens is very hollow until you go and do uh, the math and look at it. Nobody has really done that analysis uh, until now, as far as I can tell. We did an extensive literature uh, search trying to find all that was available on it, and for the most part, it really isn't available, I and mean, nobody's really thought about it from that standpoint. Now, uh, how likely is it? Well, the likelihood that the intelligences are there 
is, uh, like I said, probably a few tens to a few hundreds of thousands. There's a range within our galaxy alone. Now, keep in mind, there's trillions of galaxies. So the odds of there being other intelligences in the, in the universe is extremely high. Just by doing very conservative math to very liberal math, it gives you a range of its, uh, and it's still very high. Even if the probability is thousandth of a percent that other life exists, then just by the sheer numbers of the, the of stars that are available, that's a big number, actual number, not probability, of planets that would have intelligent life. Now you'd say, okay, then why would they want to wish us harm? Well, the first explanation would be they're aliens, and we don't know what alien motivation would be. Their motivation, in fact, would be alien, and the definition of alien is something that is beyond what you know. So that might be one example or one explanation as to why they might want to do us harm. We just wouldn't understand it because they're so alien. But now the other things would be just to simply add predator-prey population models to it, like we see in our environment, things that we know. Coyotes chase rabbits. Uh, Japanese beetles eat all of our, our fruit trees. Since they're eating all that, then the other animals that live off of those things are in some way being being attacked by them. You know, it could be something as simple as that. It might be they're here to strip mine something that we have in our environment that they like and we don't realize is useful. The motivations are, God, it's it's it's, it's infinite basically. And you know, uh, Travis in the movie Independence Day, we were talking about invaders who were an alien race that came here to take our natural resources. But first they wanted to get rid of us, so they had no one in competition for those natural resources. So, of course, you've already kind of raised the question, maybe there are things here that we don't know about that they need, or they may be things that we do know about that they need. So that would be a motive for wanting to do something here. But again, they could either invade us or cut a deal diplomatically, assuming they consider us worthy of such things. Absolutely. I I definitely agree that the scenarios are are endless, and and that's one of the reasons in the book we used science fiction examples, because the general population is more aware of the science fiction movies and books and stories and so on, and it's real easy to use that as an example, and and Independence Day is a a very good example. Uh, These aliens show up because there was something here they wanted, and we were in the way. We were either the, uh, the cockroaches that that they needed to exterminate before they moved in or whatever it was, and that may be a very good reason. Now, some would make the argument, well, if they have all the capabilities to get from there to here, then why would they need anything we have? Maybe it's just the way they are. Maybe they're nomadic. Maybe, you know, whatever their type of life is, they thrive by traveling around or or moving from place to place, or, uh, you know, there's some motivation that would have them need something here or maybe just want something here. Well, there's a scene in the movie Independence Day where Bill Pullman plays the president of the United States, and they're at Area 51, and the alien intelligence has taken over the mentality of the scientist was played by the guy who plays Data on Star Trek. Right, Brent Spiner, yeah. Brent Spiner. So, and he says, the president, can there be a peace between us? And, of course, the alien says, no peace, no peace. And then he says, what do you want? What do you want to do? He says, we want you to die. And finally, he gets this mental impression of who they are. And he likens them to locusts who simply swarm over a planet with the resources they want. They take it. They don't care about anything or anyone else. They take what they want, take what they need. When they use it up because they have no concerns about preservation, they simply get in their orbiting mothership and go on to another planet and do the same thing. Right. Uh, in fact, we... Uh 
put together a tentative and and not uh, by any any means uh, a complete list of motivations and the independence day aliens were listed in that and and they would be considered strip miners you've entered another dimension you've entered the paracast Let okay. me pause and tell our listeners you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Our guest right now is Dr. Travis Taylor. He's a co-author of a new book called Planetary Defense, a study of modern warfare applied to extraterrestrial invasion. And we're discussing the possible scenarios of why aliens would invade us, one, of course, being that they are strip miners, like the creatures in the movie Independence Day. What other motivations have you cataloged in the book? Uh, well, uh, one uh, is happenstance, for example. We just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And a good science fiction example of that, a humorous science fiction example of that, is from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Uh, basically, this uh, race of creatures are basically highway contractors, or you know, uh, universal highway contractors. And, <laughs> and the Earth is in the way of where they want to bring a new overpass. And so they basically are going to remove the earth so that they can put the freeway uh, to come through that area. You know, that's that's a extreme example, and it's, it's extremely humorous, but it's, it shows that in this type of analysis, you have to think of all the weird, crazy thought, uh, weird things like that, because that could be a possible motivation. What if uh, it just is bothering their television reception or something, and they want to, you know, like you'll cut down a tree sometimes if it's in front of your satellite dish. Uh, maybe we're just simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. We are the trees. Of course, we now have a controversy here in the United States, listeners. Those of you who are out of the country might not have read of this. We have a situation here where the principle of eminent domain is being attacked, where, for example, in some municipalities they decide, we want to build a mall where you live right now. It doesn't matter right. that your house is in great condition, that you've lived there for 30 years, you've paid it. We want your property. We will take your property. Or if you're building a highway, people are in the way. So maybe Earth is the alien's highway or yeah, Earth is yeah, the alien's interruption or impediment to building their highway or building their warp center or whatever, and yep. they need to get rid of us. That's an interesting yep, motivation. That, that, that's one uh, one possible motivation, and it's actually kind of humorous. And you know, in, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there was even a, a statement made that well, this the plans of this highway has been on drawing at uh, City Hall for over two centuries, and nobody from your planet has opposed it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that that may uh, that could be a similar thing. You know, it's, politics could be what what ends up killing us all in the end. Now, there are other motivations, of course, and again, we didn't complete. The list. We just started a list saying uh, this. This book really is. Remember, it's an introduction, and, and it was really what we thought would be a, a stepping stone for people to look at and say, "Oh, I never thought about that way." Let's go down that path and, and, and discuss that some more. So we wrote down a handful of ideas. Like one is our destructors is one of the uh, topics, 
And if you've seen the movies like uh, Titan A.E. or Mars Attacks or Earth versus the Flying Saucers, you know, Unicron from the Transformers series or Galactus from the Fantastic Four. Or, of course, we always have the Daleks in the Doctor Who series. That's right. Daleks, absolutely. Uh, They They make the most offensive noise. They sound like, I finally found a way to compare their sound, the noise that they make. And the sound they make, the Daleks, is very much like, oh, take an electric toothbrush and make a voice out of it. <laughs> and you have yeah. a Dalek. Well, I mean, that's a good example of people who are, are, are alien life forms that would be destroying just for the mere fact of destroying. You know, that's what they do. It could be a runaway, malfunctioning uh, artificial intelligence, even. You know, there's uh, it could be von Neumann probes if you're familiar with that. In fact, would you uh, explain what those are for those who don't follow science fiction and stuff? Yeah, as a good example of uh, of von Neumann probes, you can check out my new sci-fi book. It's coming out in July. It's called Von Neumann's War, uh, but it's actually about what what, what von Neumann probes are. Uh, John von Neumann, a Hungarian mathematician and physicist, had the idea that in order to go to other star systems, the best thing might be to send a self one self-replicating robot to that star, let it take the long journey itself, get there and start self-replicating itself using the resources on that planet. You know, there's metal ores and things of that nature that it could use. Start replicating itself till there's enough of itself to then start creating an infrastructure on that planet. Like, okay, so the one robot gets here, it creates a billion of itself, and then it starts building highways, buildings, waterways, uh, toilets, you know, whatever these aliens might need when they would get here eventually. And they would have one programmatic uh, task, and that would be to prepare that solar system for its masters when they show up. And then uh, they would, when they reached the point where the, that system was terraformed or they had enough creature, uh, enough robots there to do the job, then they would send another one on to another star system to terraform the next one. And that's basically what von Neumann probes are. So now uh, think about that. If a von Neumann uh, probe landed here on Earth and started doing this, or if they landed here by the millions or billions or what have you, if they replicated fast, uh, used some technology like, you know, nanotechnology where they can build themselves from the atom up just from a blueprint very, very rapidly, then it would be hard to uh, defeat creatures like that. Well, if you follow the series Stargate SG-1, you the have the replicators, right? Absolutely. And yes. the replicators uh, are able from one circuit or integrated circuit or a piece of nanotechnology basically able to reproduce themselves like rabbits. They're just maybe computerized versions of of rabbits, that's all. Yeah, they just thrive right up out of the in-situ material, whatever is there available for them. Like there's even one episode where uh, I think the uh, replicators rebuilt themselves out of a crashed submarine, and it was uh, simply the fact that they used iron to make themselves that uh, the SG-1 team was able to feed them by putting salt water on them and resting them. Well, that's one way to deal with the aliens. What other motivations can you brief recount sure. for our listeners before we go on? Uh, conquerors, uh, most most definitely conquerors. Like uh, we see that in our history, but uh, the Klingons are the best example of conquerors. They just like to go and, uh, and and have the thrill of conquest and battle and victory and 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 spreading their empire. Uh, we mentioned strip miners. Harvesters would be another. Some science fiction examples of that would be uh, like signs where they were harvesting humans for some reason. Or, or uh, there's an old movie called I Come in Peace 
where this uh, alien drug dealer was using some enzyme in human brains to create this cool alien drug that he was selling to his uh, junkies. Uh, you know, they were they could be harvesting something from us. Hunters and collectors, like in the Predator movies, uh, assimilators, which would be the worst to deal with, probably like the Borg or the Purity from the X Files, or the the little slugs in the in the Puppet Masters. Uh, or Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Faculty, Dark Skies, that kind of thing. Or the TV series that just got canceled, Invasion, where you have these hybrid creatures which are part alien, part human, and they assimilate a human being who goes into this lake where the creatures are. It comes out, and they look like us, and for all practical purposes, they are us with the same memories, but they are also part alien. Unfortunately, the series was canceled before the issue could be fully resolved. Well, that, that, that's a very common theme, uh, the assimilators, uh, and they it probably originated from Heinlein's The Puppet Masters, because uh, it's, it's, it's been widely known that, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the movie The Faculty, they all took that theory, that idea, from uh, Heinlein's book, The Puppet Masters. And I recommend the book, not the movie, because the movie has, is nothing like the book. Unfortunately, uh, that's true about too many movies. Oh, yeah, that's right. The other other possible ideas are uh, opposing warriors. We just happen to, and again, that, the happenstance uh, kind of fits this category, but opposing warriors, we just happen to be in the wrong place when two warring factions show up. You know, we could be a good outpost for a military strike team. It could be they just happen to be in the neighborhood while they're in the midst of a giant galactic uh, uh, space opera type battle. Uh, who knows what it could be? Uh, you know, one possible example that I used in the book was the comic book battle between Superman and Doomsday, where Superman gets killed by this this uh, alien creature. And those are two aliens that just happened to be here that showed up and started fighting, and they destroyed most of the the United States during that fight. This is Tim Beckley, Mister UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Hold that thought and tell our listeners you're in the Paracast, and we are proud to have on our show uh, Travis Taylor. He is author, one of the authors, of a book called Planetary Defense, a study of modern warfare applied extraterrestrial invasion. So far, we have been exploring the motivations. Why would an alien race want to come here and do harm to us? Maybe we're just ants to them. We're not uncles, we're ants. What else, before we go on to the next logical step of this, what other motivations can we glean from the science fiction world or from mere speculation? Right. uh, Tourists, uh, for example. Men in black, 
uh, and there's a book series uh, called The Black Hole Travel Agency, science fiction book series. And, you know, Men in Black is the same as this Black Hole Travel Agency thing. There are aliens coming here to visit. They're on vacation. And they could uh, go awry or be bad guys in some way or the other and cause us problems. There could be meddlers, as I like to call them. And a very good example of a meddler would be Q from Star Trek. You know, he's a real powerful alien. He likes to just dabble with stuff and and, and torture people just to see what happens. He does it because uh, he can. Yes, yes. And, uh, and he's a renegade from his race because his race doesn't like what he does, as I recall. Right. That, that's right. Uh, there are all sorts of other... the. They're, that think, you know, from a superior morality, for example, that they they would assume their morality is superior, that that they're imposing their will on us. Do you remember uh, an early Star Trek episode in the original series where they had one particular creature who created an environment like the Middle Ages, and he was torturing the crew of the Enterprise? It ended up at the end that he was a child. A child who was taking his toys, his abilities, and dealing with real creatures. At the end, of course, his parents said, uh-uh, you're not supposed to do that. And they disciplined yeah, that was, him. That was Trelane. Right, Trelane. Uh, yeah, Trelane. Well, and in some of the Star Trek books, they actually suggest that Trelane was an infant Q, uh, if I recall my uh, Star Trek genre, right? And, yeah, that's right. I mean, it could be something very as, as simple as that. You know, it could be a kid uh, holding us like ants under a magnifying glass, you know, trying to burn us or trying to uh, stick uh, firecrackers uh, in in the anthills and things of that nature. It could be that simple. Then there are the movers, which uh, Independence Day would also fall in this, as well as the strip miners. Maybe they're, like, in Independence Day, they would take whatever they needed from that one place and it would move on to the next place. And it could be as simple as this. There could be uh, people who've used up their resources, so they're moving, looking for a new place to stay. Uh, experimenters, you know, like in the TV series on sci-fi, Taken, or the Greys from the X-Files, either one. Basically, they were using humans as some sort of lab rat. And also, uh, there could be not just experimenters, but experiments where the actual experiment is trying to conquer in some way, like in the comedy movie with David Duchovny, uh, Evolution. You know, the alien organism ended up here, and and then it was attacking us by trying to overcome the planet. You know, a more uh, hard sci-fi example, that would be John Ringo's book, Through the Looking Glass, where these alien orga- organisms were basically trying to grow and take over the whole planet biologically. Terraformers. You know, again, like the replicators from the Star, uh, Stargate SG-1 or the book I was talking about, Von Neumann's War, or various other types of terraform. Maybe they just show up here and, and decide that the planet isn't uh, what they want. It's not in the shape they want it, so they start changing it. Like uh, there was a Charlie Sheen movie. Uh, God, what was the name of that movie? That that uh, these aliens were actually putting out greenhouse gases and uh, trying to terraform the planet, make it hotter for them. I think it was The Arrival. That was it. Right, and there was a sequel, but the sequel had different people in it and wasn't quite as good. I thought The Arrival was a half-decent movie. Yeah, I thought it was, too. Yeah, Ron Silver always makes a good bad guy. And then, of course, there's the motivation unknown. They're so alien that we just don't understand why they're here, what the heck they're doing, and why they're doing it. And in that case, you know, it comes a point where you quit asking why they're here and just start trying to figure out how do we get them away or how do we coexist or how do we survive. But but at any rate, it does does go for some good discussion around the table, around the uh, the campfire, or uh, around the bar, <laughs> where 
you trying to figure out, well, why would they be here? And it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but then there comes a point where you get a little more serious about it, and you think, well, okay, let's assume that they're coming, and they're going to be able to get here from wherever they come from in some large enough quantity that it's a hazard to us. Then what do we do next? Well, we have to figure out a way to survive. I can see your point here, but let's ask the first question before we even get to the point of survival, which is now that we can look at a number of reasons why an alien life form might want to come here and do us harm, and we can't speak of morality because we're dealing with an alien life form that has its own morality and has its own viewpoint, but think about this way, what we kill in the course of our life, non-humans, forget about the humans that are murdered, but the non-human creatures on our own planet that we consider beneath us, they're our food, they're, they just get in the way like insects, etc., etc. Okay, before we plan a planetary defense, do you feel that there's a chance these aliens are here? Obviously, we have the UFO stories, and we've covered that extensively on the PowerCast. Where do you stand in that particular debate? Uh, where do I stand in that particular debate? Wow, I'm not a believer or a non-believer i'm a scientist in that and in that i haven't seen the smoking gun to prove that that there's an alien presence uh i haven't seen a smoking gun to disprove it either probabilistically uh even in the book we show that uh one of the ends of the range of probability that their aliens are here is visitations once every hundred years uh one of the other ranges is once every a hundred thousand years or something but the mathematically they could be here mathematically they might not be here my take on that is from a scientific standpoint is i haven't seen the smoking gun evidence myself personally okay to extend that then do you think maybe you're jumping the gun a wee bit in speculating about how to handle an alien invasion if we at this point do not know whether or not there's any threat ah Absolutely not. And I can give you an example of why. Uh, we don't know that a tornado is going to occur sometime in the next month. And I live in uh, North Alabama, which is one of the hot spots uh, for tornadoes, uh, F4, F1 to F4 tornadoes in the world. And uh, although we don't know that there will be uh, an F4 tornado, there's been a lot of them in the past, and it's likely it's going to happen again. So should you prepare for it? Well, I think you should. Sure, Another but we thing. haven't had an alien invasion that we know about. We're preparing for something that's unknown with a tornado, with a hurricane. We know those events happen. We know they can be really, really dangerous. We know earthquakes can occur. They can cause extensive damage, loss of life. We know those things are real. But what about the alien visit? As you right, said, there's right. no smoking guns, so why speculate about it? Uh, well, the biggest reason to speculate about it is when you just look up at the sky at night and realize that the number of stars you're seeing is minuscule to the total number of stars that are out there. And the likelihood, and, and also realizing that the universe is about 13 billion years old, so there's been plenty of time for any of these motivated aliens to have evolved and decided to travel elsewhere and make themselves a menace to the local inhabitants. Uh, just from a, a mathematical standpoint, the probability is, is not zero that it's going to happen. So it's like, I guess, the probability of, of getting hit by a car when you cross the street is real small, 
but you still look both ways and you still take some precautions. I mean, there's more more likely to get by a car, of course, than to be invaded by aliens. But but that's kind of the point that I'm making. It the probability is there; it's not zero. So there should be some plan, at least a plan, on what we would do. Because if if you wait to the last minute at our technological uh, level today for humanity, if we waited until we were invaded before we prepared, then uh, we would have no hope of, of surviving, most likely. And that's why we would suggest that uh, you should start thinking about it. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let's think about this. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And joining us this week, Dr. Travis Taylor. He's a co-author of a new book called Planetary Defense, a study of modern warfare applied to extraterrestrial invasion. So let's move to the next step here. Assuming there is any possibility at all that we're going to be invaded from creatures from out there. If a race is smart enough to come here from another star system. They have technology that might be hundreds or thousands of years ahead of us. What hope do we have to be able to defend against that? Well, that's uh, that's sort of the meat of the, of the question right there, isn't it? That's the, the toughest thing. Well, uh, we did an analysis on what it would take if you were traveling in a spacecraft moving at 100 times the speed of light to get from some star that's not too far away to here in uh, within a decent amount of time within a creature's lifespan. You know, it would take, with our fastest spacecraft right now to get to the nearest star, it would take uh, on the order of 1,000 to 10,000 years to get there. Uh, we have the technology to build a spacecraft, basically spending all the money of the planet to build the thing, to get to the nearest star possibly in 100 years, Maybe a little less uh, depends on technological breakthroughs. But uh, so say these aliens are so far advanced that they can travel 100 times faster than the speed of light. We can't travel, you know, uh, even at uh, 1% the speed of light. All right. Well, that would mean if a single micrometeorite uh, in space hit their spacecraft at that speed, it would uh, destroy their spacecraft with uh, something on the order of. 10 to the 36 joules, and that's a lot of energy. And our biggest uh, nuclear weapon could create something like, oh, 10 to the 17 joules. Now, what I'm telling you is the, uh, the biggest bomb humanity has ever made is 6,500 times smaller in energy than what it, what it would take. No, actually, it's more than that. It's uh, got 17 orders of magnitude uh, smaller than what it would take to penetrate the vessel that these alien creatures were using. Let me recap that. The alien creatures have a spacecraft that can go so fast that even a little teeny tiny piece of space dust would create something that's billions and billions of times more energy than our largest bomb we've ever created. So how could we use 
like dropping nukes on them, uh, would have no effect. It would be like swatting at a gnat uh, to them. So how could we d- uh, defend against something like that? Well, we have to be clever <laughs> and or, or start trying to come up with new types of uh, weapons. And this isn't the handsome scientist and the pretty assistant who you see in science fiction movies. This requires a lot more than two people to invent, I would assume. Oh, well, think about the uh, Manhattan Project to create the first uh, nuclear weapon. I mean, it was a whole city of folks at Los Alamos, at Oak Ridge, at uh, University of Chicago, all around the country working on the Manhattan Project to develop the first atomic bombs. And we're talking about we're going to need that type of breakthrough uh, in order to defend against uh, these alien creatures Now, what and their technology, if they were able to get from there to here. Now, there are strategic and tactical things that can come into play. And uh, one example that uh, has been in science fiction a few times, uh, for example, in the latest version of War of the Worlds, the creatures had shields, and uh, in order to get inside it, uh, Tom Cruise allowed himself to be captured. And once inside, he detonated a grenade, and they were just as fragile as any other technology, the grenade uh, destroyed it from the inside, but it wouldn't harm them from the outside with their shields. Well, that was the thing in Independence Day. They had to get by the alien shields, and they used the computer virus to disable them. (laughs) Right, right. Same thing in in Independence Day. That's that's true. And what what they did once they got inside the shield, if you recall, they released a a nuke inside the mothership that did uh, more damage than a nuke actually will do. But that's that's the idea. You've got to figure out a tactic to get you inside the shield. Now, until we see what their technology is and how they use it, that's something that would have to be a tactic and not a strategy because uh, we wouldn't know how to get inside their shield until we saw it. But we should plan as a strategy to keep in mind that tactic. Uh, I know that sounds <laughs> sounds odd to say it that way, but as a strategy for defending against alien attackers, recall the tactic of figuring out a way to get inside their shields and detonate them from inside. And one particular tactic that we mention in here is to have teams of uh, basically suicide bombers to uh, plan a, uh, an attack at once. All of them get captured and to release the, the suicide bomb uh, at, at roughly the same time. Because once you've done it a few times, they would get smart to it. And so you wouldn't want to do that to just one or two of them. You'd want to do it to many of them at one time. You'd have to have volunteers who'd be willing to give their lives for this kind of venture. Right. Uh, special ops people, maybe, maybe uh, well, you know, if the whole world is at, at threat, then uh, there would be people who would volunteer to do such things, uh, heroic people. That always happens in most, most instances where freedom is at, at, at some sort of uh, threat. Then there are other things, uh, chemical, biological weapons that uh, you see in the sci-fi a lot in the original uh, War of the Worlds uh, was a virus. But that virus, of course, was the fact that they, which sounds to me in retrospect to be kind of a silly solution, that they had not prepared themselves for the microbes of this world and therefore were infected by a cold virus or something. I would assume that any alien race coming here to attack us would know about such things would prepare themselves against such things with probes, and therefore this would be maybe the basic, most minimal possibility that they'd be infected. Well, actually, scientifically, turns out that that most likely wouldn't work anyway. And the reason that viruses attack humans is because they've evolved, and, and, and rabbits and squirrels and monkeys and whatever else, uh, is because they've evolved to figure out how to attack the immune systems 
of the creatures on this planet. They haven't evolved to attack uh, other biological forms that is not within our niche, within our ecosystem. And the, sci- the accepted scientific theory now uh, across the uh, exobiology community and, and, so on and so on is that uh, viruses and bacteria from other planets would most likely not have evolved in such a way that they could impact or affect uh, the alien creatures, uh, meaning we wouldn't expect that the bacteria and viruses from other planets would harm us and so on. Now, don't mean that you wouldn't want to take precautions, and especially aliens from that had you know warp drive capabilities would know would be smart enough to take precautions, uh, even though it's unlikely that it would happen. Well, about about warp, warp drive, just let's drop this bomb for a minute. Warp drive. Now, looking at this race that's hundreds of thousands of years ahead of us. Now, do our physicists believe that a warp drive is? possible at some time in the future. They're already talking about possibly teleporting objects from one location to another, which, of course, is that matter transportation. So what about warp drive? Yeah, actually, that's one of my particular uh, expertise and one of the things that I've uh, spent a lot of time in my professional career as a scientist working on. Um, And, in fact, also it was the main topic of my first science fiction book that I ever wrote was about how we would go about creating a warp drive. In 1994, a fellow named Miguel Alcubierre, he was a physicist, sent a letter to uh, uh, the editor at uh, Classical and Quantum Gravity. It's a, a, sci- a physics journal about general relativity. And he showed in that that there are uh, rules within general relativity that would allow for a Star Trek-like warp drive to be created. And uh, you basically would create an expansion of space-time in front of you and a contraction behind you, and that would allow you to travel at speeds to an outside observer that would be much greater than the speed of light. But within the little warp bubble that the spacecraft would be in, you would it would be like you were just sitting still. You wouldn't realize you were traveling. In fact, you wouldn't be traveling faster than the speed of light inside the warp bubble. And all this is fits within the realm of general relativity. Now, the long pole in that is, or the technology hurdle, is uh, Alcubierre, Alcubierre showed that you would require a thing that violates this law of physics that we call the weak energy condition. Uh, the weak energy condition says that you can't have matter or energy that looks like it's negative matter or energy meaning you can't create a a chunk of rock that makes things fall away from it instead of fall toward it. But there are two or three instances in some odd exotic experiments uh, and theories that where this theory is violated or where this uh, principle is violated. And uh, one's called the Casimir effect, for example. And there's been some experiments and papers that show that in this thing called the Casimir effect that you can actually make the speed of light get faster. And what you're doing is you're warping space, uh, theoretically that's what's happening, is you're warping space in such a way that you're making the local space look like uh, the speed of light is greater. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com that's 1-800-728-2730 or www 
dot F-A-T-E-M-A-G dot com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Whoa. Ha, 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 ha. Let me pause. Tell our listeners you're in the Paracats with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Dr. Travis Taylor, a co-author of the provocative new book, Planetary Defense, Study of Modern Warfare Applied to Extraterrestrial Invasion. We have a clickable link at our website, theparacast.com, where you go right to Amazon.com to check out the book and order a copy. So that's one quick way to learn more about it. Otherwise, go to Amazon directly and search for it or search the name Dr. Travis Taylor. Travis, as we progress through the final portion of this discussion, I think it's just the beginning. We'd like to have you back in the future to talk further about it. Now, back in the 1980s, President Reagan made this statement. Some people thought the old guy was losing it when he said this, that we ought to think about uniting against the possibility that there would be a war in space if you recall that particular statement. Yeah, actually, we've got the exact quote in the book somewhere, I think, in about the sixth or seventh chapter. And it was what Reagan had always told his uh, speechwriters. He called it his ultimate fantasy. And uh, a lot of the uh, UFO folks or or the government conspiracy folks always think that it was Reagan trying to tell us something. But uh, you can go to the Smithsonian and see one of the speeches that he's corrected and says, what about my ultimate fantasy? Uh, for peace, and uh, that was the night that he took the speech and added in his statement, uh, he was talking to the UN, he added in the statement, I would like to uh, think that if we were, if, if humanity was threatened by an outside alien force, that we would put that, put our differences aside and join together and become uh, one one race to defend ourselves or something something of that nature you know historically you could look at it from from his notes and so on that he was really thinking if if we really had a hurdle that we had to jump over together then the soviets and the and the americans would put down their cold war and and become brothers and fight together and i think that's what a lot of people think his ultimate fantasy were and of course others think otherwise about it but you would like to hope that we would do that and we discuss would we really do that uh, in this particular chapter in the book. And there would be, there's always going to be factions that are not going to sway to the to whichever side. And so that might become a problem. And so the initial preparation we think should be thought of as an American preparation or an American strategy. And then the next tier is. Uh, okay, then maybe that's not the strategy that will survive, but it's a purely humanity strategy. And, you know, if all humans, the question is philosophical at that point uh, and political, I guess, if uh, if there's no way that we can de- defeat the aliens and America survive, do you still want to defeat the aliens and humanity live under communist China? Uh, you know, that's something to play around with in your mind and your own beliefs. So we don't know. Would, would humanity do that? And Again, Reagan called it his ultimate fantasy probably for that reason, because it is most likely a fantasy. Okay, but let's talk about the reality here. Now, you posit a beginning in preparing for this possible invasion from outer space. And if it were to happen, we have no idea if it happens tomorrow, next year, 100 years from now. How do you convince enough people to mount a defense plan against such uncertainties. We have enough trouble figuring out how to defend ourselves against a hurricane. Look at the mess 
with Hurricane Katrina, government just fell apart. All levels right. of government. How are we going to unite to make this kind of long-range plan? How do we do it? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a tough question. You know, and that's one of the things we brought out was that as a country, we have no civil defense plan. Uh, for very little do our civil defense plans work. They are all reactive. There are no plans that take place as we see the things about to occur or before they happen. Uh, we don't have that. I mean, there may be a few individuals that have shelters or have escape routes figured out, know where the, the fire exits are. But in general, as a nation, as a species, we do not have a civil defense plan. Uh, what if we had a, an extinction-level asteroid headed our way? Even if we had two years to prepare for it, we probably don't really have uh, civil defense preparedness enough that we would be able to do anything. And, and, the, poli- and the political barge uh, uh, is the monster is so big and it moves so slowly and, and, and a lot of times against itself. Uh, it might be that we're so slow in doing things that it might be too late. Well, so with the aliens involved, how do you get, uh, you know, an alien invasion involved? How do you get enough people behind you such that uh, we could we could start preparing? That that's just a tough question to get funding. We can't get funding to start looking for uh, near Earth asteroids, near Earth objects, and we know that they hit the planet every so often and cause tremendous damage. And we have about you know somewhere between one and fifty million dollars a year in programs to just look for the things which is enough budget to look at about one or two or three percent of the sky you know that's a small amount of the sky so we have no idea where all the near-earth objects are that uh, are eventually going to hit the planet it's just a matter of when and we know that's going to happen and we're doing very little budget wise to uh, prepare for that we're not even building a trying to have a research program to figure out how to defeat a near-Earth object. Uh, I would say that as long as we are a quarter-to-quarter species, quarter-to-quarter economy and so on, it's going to be difficult to get people to prepare for it without the looming threat, the serious looming threat like it was so near of a threat to us in the Cold War and perhaps now, well, you know, we have uh, a global war on terrorism that uh, half of the country doesn't even believe exists and the other half of the country believes it's uh, one of the most uh, involving, horrible situations that we're in. So we're so divided in something that close to us, how do you convince them? It's, it's I don't know. It's, it's a very difficult question. Well, let's start now, by having people read your book and get some ideas. Now, can you tell me just very briefly in the final section about your co-authors? Oh, yeah. And so what I'll do is perhaps maybe give you a, a little bit about me and about the other authors just so you'll know that uh, we aren't just a couple of smucks that decided to (laughs) start putting this stuff together. Uh, I have a doctorate in optical science and engineering. I have a master's degree in physics. I have a master's degree in aerospace engineering. They're from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. I have a master's degree in astronomy from the University of Western Sydney and a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from Auburn University. I've spent most of my life since I was a teenager working for the Department of Defense or NASA or the Intelligence community in some form or fashion. Uh, We've recently, of course, written this book, and I've been involved in the writing of the book called Deep Space Probes. I wrote the appendix to it on uh, on interstellar spacecraft, and uh, I've also written several uh, science fiction books. Now, uh, the next main author, Bob Bone, Dr. Bob Bone, he and I are the ones who wrote about 75% of the book. Uh, Anyway, Dr. Bob Bone, he has spent 
most of his life in some form or fashion working for Department of Defense or the intelligence community. He is and, and in space programs. His PhD is in chemistry and he let's see he went to Campbell College and the University of Mississippi and he's also been noted as a who's who in the South and Southwest and uh, Marquis who's who in America. Uh, and Bob and I have worked together for years on various DOD and NASA projects and so on. And Bob is one of the smartest guys I ever met. He's, he's, in fact, he, he offered to give you a call and, and talk, to, uh, talk to you in the future. So you might keep that in mind. We will indeed. I think we're going to want to do follow-ups on this because it's a subject that requires a lot of attention. Okay. I agree with that. Uh, the, uh, the contributing authors, as we call them, are two other colleagues of ours. The first is, uh, uh, Charles Anding. Charlie and I worked uh, for a space defense company for a few years together, and he is one of the best systems engineers I've ever seen in my life. He's worked on the International Space Station uh, components. He's worked on space shuttle parts. Uh, he's, he's developed UAV technologies. And uh, Charlie and Bob and I and our other co-author, I'll mention in a minute, also worked on putting together a, a mission to Pluto. Uh, we were in competition to the New Horizons project. Uh, and, of course, they chose the New Horizons project because ours was a little more expensive. But at any rate, we, we spent a long time working together on uh, spacecraft technologies, and Charlie has a, a very good handle on modern spacecraft uh, engineering. And then the final uh, contributing author is uh, Dr. Uh, Conley Powell. Conley... Uh, is a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering, but as he'll tell anybody if you meet him, trajectories and orbits are his life. He is a uh, an expert in developing rocket technologies, rocket trajectories, rocket orbits, space missions, and uh, very, very good at the, the, math, the complex mathematics of numerical analysis and simulations of uh, you know, missile defense, uh, spacecraft launches, uh, intercepts, and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, you see, we've, we've got together, the four of us, probably more than a century's worth of experience in relevant environment. I had some folks ask me, well, if we're talking about doing uh, the defense of the planet, how come we don't have any military guys helping us out? And my response to that was, well, all of us, all the co-authors have helped in some way or the other in military planning, simulation, strategy, and so on. And in a lot of cases, it's usually the military folks that implement the ideas and not develop the ideas. Uh, but at the same time, all military projects have military eyes upon them in some way or the other. We've had some of our friends in, in the community read the book before we released it, and we've had uh, nothing but but good comments and constructive comments about it. I want to thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Paracast. And if you want to learn more about the book that Dr. Travis Taylor and his three co-authors produced, An Introduction to Planetary Defense, A Study of Modern Warfare, Applied to Extraterrestrial Invasion, go to Amazon Books or check the link we have posted at theparacast.com. Travis, thanks much for joining us on oh, the Paracast. We hope that you or one of your co-authors will be back in the future. We'd love to.
We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, $19.95 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. We got a letter from a listener very recently, Brad Steiger, and it said, how about a show focusing on the Philadelphia Experiment? I don't hear much about the Philadelphia Experiment anymore, and I always found it an extremely tantalizing conspiracy. For those who are unfamiliar with what this thing is or was, Brad Steiger, please explain. Coincidence, we do have the Philadelphia Experiment Conspiracy in our new book, which I know you'll mention in a minute or two. But the Philadelphia Experiment, just in a nutshell, has been around since 1956. But it deals with an experiment that allegedly the U.S. Navy conducted in October of 1943 in a concerted effort to create invisibility. Now, for those who aren't so good in history, in 1943, we were smack dab in the Second World War against uh, the Japanese, the Nazis, and the Italians still at that time. And we were looking for something to save our ships because the Nazi U-boats were taking an incredible toll, especially of our merchant vessels. So it seemed desperate to employ, allegedly, Nikola Tesla, one of the great scientists of all time, Albert Einstein, it is claimed, took part in this, and several other leading physicists. They supposedly and allegedly made a battleship go blank, go completely out. But then what happened is it it transported from its dock in Philadelphia to its dock in Norfolk. Well, that seemed to be a great success. They didn't understand. They didn't predict about the teleportation. And the tragic thing that they didn't predict is the effect on the crew. So after the teleportation took place, Individuals began to burst into flame, and then they saw some people were stuck, literally, an arm in the metal, because allegedly, of course, in teleportation, you know, it's like beam me aboard Scotty, all the little molecules go diggly, 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 and some people were stuck in yet metal there. So that is the essence of it. The Navy completely denies that it took place. Now, 
how it came to light was a gentleman who had written a book called The Case for the UFO, Morris K. Jessup. He received a copy of his paperback book annotated by a man claiming to be Carlos Miguel Allende, who claimed to have witnessed this experiment himself along with other mysterious individuals and that they were claiming and, and seeming to, from standpoint of uh, Dr. Jessup, to be maybe extraterrestrials or maybe they themselves are members of an older, old, very old terrestrial race or maybe they were just on board some of the other ships witnessing. But the great mystery then was brought to light in 1956 when Jessup received this copy of individuals claiming to have witnessed this incredible scientific accomplishment and very tragic event. Now that's a nutshell of it. Okay, we're going to expand on it now. You're in the PowerCast. We're joined by Brad Steiger. Recent book includes Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the complete dossier that he wrote with his wife, Sherry Steiger. And it's a book that has been favorably reviewed. It covers the whole collection of conspiracy theories. And for those of you who have heard our interviews with Ken Thomas, for example, there are so many different things going on there. We have the Kennedy assassination. We have the strange connection, for example, between this character in the Maury Allen UFO case, Fred Chrisman, and possibly the Kennedy assassination. So that gets to be pretty crazy. Right now we're talking about the Philadelphia experiment, supposedly an experiment in invisibility that took place in the 1940s. Now, in connection with M.K. Jessup, there was this annotated edition of his book, The Case for the UFO. Right. That's circulated. What's that right. about? Well, this was uh, printed allegedly by the Navy. They printed their own version of it. It was circulated. I was able to see a copy, and I'm quite certain you were, Gene, back in the uh, mid-60s or so. This appears, it's either nutso stuff or very revealing kind of information, depending on your interpretation of reality, I guess. But these individuals make some claims, and it sounds very disdainful. Like, you know, it's kind of like Puck in Midsummer's Night Dream. What fools these mortals be? Don't you know they're, uh, what, they're, what they're messing with? So then other people jumping on this, so to speak, have claimed that indeed there was some secret deal made with extraterrestrial to gain some of their technology, which was utilized in this experiment, and then things went wrong. It caused a great rip in the cosmos, and that's why the teleportation, and that's why people uh, burst into flame and got stuck in the, in the actual metal. And we have a number of individuals now claiming that they actually were there and they participated and they they were born again, so to speak, in other bodies. So we we have an incredible mystique growing up that just won't die. I mean, it just absolutely will not. Every time Sherry and I have just completely written this off, then we get a letter or when we meet somebody, or then a person who's been a friend for many years will suddenly say, you know, I've always wanted to tell you, but 
my father actually took part in that experiment. And, you know, there you go again. Gets pretty crazy, I'll tell you. There was a movie, by the way, folks, The Philadelphia Experiment, which fictionalized this, where you had an actor who played this particular sailor who was a member of the crew of that ship. Let's go back to the beginning before we deal with the people. Are there any records at all, provable records, to show this might be true? I mean, just from my point of view, Gene, no. But uh, others feel that they have certain references, and the rather, I guess we have to concede, mysterious death of Tesla not too long after that. But then there are those who say, and according to the notes in the, um, the margins of Case for the UFO that Jessup received, there's reference to Einstein's unified field theory that was applied. Well, remember, this was, took place in 1943, so several physicists have pointed out that Einstein hadn't yet developed his unified field theory in 1943. Then others will say, well, maybe he didn't release it or maybe he didn't perfect it until later, but he could have been working on it. And then all sorts of other physicists from from uh, major universities that I mentioned as being involved. But, you know, actually a document saying, and something that has now been released through the Freedom of Information Act, I don't know of any such document, do you? I'm not aware of any, but <laughs> this legend just goes on. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let's go to that second aspect of it. Before we do, though, let me remind our listeners, you're in the Paracast. We're joined by Brad Steiger, and he joins us today in response to letters from our listeners asking about the Philadelphia Experiment. He's author of well over 160 books, including Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier, with Brad and his wife, Sherry Steiger, and the Philadelphia Experiment is one of those great legends that just has arisen. Now, let's look at both ends of it here. If it was something that was a fake, somebody made up the story, who did it and why? Is it this Carl Allen or Allende or whoever he was? Yes, Carl Carlos Allende seems to be just the transliteration of his real name, Carl Allen. And I, I saw some interesting... Actually, got it, I should have pulled it out. Anyway, someone sent me a newspaper article that was probably the last interview he gave before his death, in which first he had denied and been exposed, and we had a freelance writer, Bob Gorman, who tracked him down, tracked the whole family down, sat with the family as they took out their scrapbook, showed them Carl Allen, and said, you know, he was always that way. He always had a wild imagination. He wanted to write science fiction story. This was just Carl being Carl. And 
he seemed then the whole family saying, you know, it was just a hoax and so forth. At his, so, so, let's not over-dramatize it, but you know, deathbed confession, so to speak. He claims again it's all true, and that it actually happened. Now, I, I just received, there are no coincidences, I just received this email, <laughs> and this is the son of, of a military scientist, so he spent his youth on, on military bases, and he says one of the main strike points that the skeptics use to debunk the Philadelphia experiment is the known history of the USS Eldridge, which was supposed to be the ship that disappeared. At the time, the Navy had been knocking out ships at a phenomenal rate, most of which similar class ships were based on the same blueprints. As far as I know, Carl's Allende, Carl Allen, only identified the ship by its numbers, and out of that, the experimental ship was identified as the Eldridge. I think it might be more than possible that with a project deemed so important that a similar class ship under construction or already constructed on its hull might have been given duplicate numbers. Remember, disinformation, misdirection didn't exactly begin with Roswell. Should the experiment be a success, failure at the time, just to make a, ra a ship radar invisible, what better way to throw off German-Japanese spies than to have a ship temporarily identified as one that was currently under construction at a separate location. I think that would be part of standard spook thinking. So there's another, there's another wrinkle to it. What was Carl Allen's history? Who was he? We know he was somebody who brought this information to the attention of M.K. Jessup, that he used this Spanish-inspired name. But what is his background? Was he really in the military at one time? He was, I don't think we should, we should say military, but I think he was a seaman. I think he was, I think we have determined that he was a merchant seaman and that he, again, you know, he said he, he could have watched it, but... I think, well, you know, my own encounter with Carlos Allen, I don't think I ever told you this, Gene, but after I did the uh, article in Saga magazine, you know, way back in 1966, 67, that kind of started the whole thing going again, and then I did a book uh, called The Allende Letters, he claimed... And he, and he went to another uh, well-known researcher, and they put it in their newsletter, that he had come to me, and he had begged me not to print this book, not to do this article. And I had literally roughed him up, thrown him out of my office, told him, be gone. <laughs> and, of course, I never met the man. Okay. So... There was a complete fantasy that he spun about me. Well, that certainly gives an indication right there this guy was pulling our legs. But now we have on the other side of the coin, we have some people running around here, and you know who they are, and we don't have to give the names if you don't want, but at least tell the stories. People who claim they were somehow reincarnated from the people who were crewmen on that ship? Well, it's even a little more than that. It is, you know, really inspired by the Michael Pare character in, in the motion picture that you previously mentioned, Gene. Right. Uh, they claim that they jumped overboard or they were on the ship and they
they then were projected forward in time and then managed to go back in time and then I guess forward to our our time once again. Now, again, without mentioning names, and I think you may have been at this conference, but, well, we might as well say the name because, you know, Al, Al Bielik yes. has been a, a good friend. Uh, in fact, he's the one that gave me the uh, the annotated edition, the Navy annotated edition on microfilm that I used to do the book, the NNA letters, new, uh, new UFO Breakthrough. He, he had been at our home. I mean, he was there the holidays. He, you know, loved Sherry's cooking. She was jokingly calling him our oldest son, which, of course, he's considerably older than she and, and even older than I am. And... Tim Beckley, our mutual friend, was going to have a big conference, and I introduced him to Al, and I said, you know, Al has, he's the expert. He is the authority on the Philadelphia experiment. Tim, you should feature him at this upcoming conference in Phoenix. So Tim and I, uh, we, we met with uh, Al in a, a Denny's, <laughs> had coffee and whatever. You recovered and, uh, from Denny's at least. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, got got to uh, know one another, and then Al comes up and, and, and gives this dynamic speech, and then uh, I, I'm not sure if you read this one or not. I think I, think I was. I think yeah, at I that think point, I remember a very important thing here. My son Grayson, at that point, may have been four or five years old, right. and he kept running around saying, Brad Steiger's a good guy. <laughs> Bless him. Bless him. <laughs> I remember that. I was really touched by that. Well, Al then is up in front of everybody, and then he announces that he actually participated in the experiment. And Sherry, Tim, and I just fell off our chairs. I had known Al at that point for probably 20 years, and we had talked about it. I mean, he was, in my opinion, the the most knowledgeable, the most authoritative, his scientific background, everything. And now he had declared that he actually was participated. He actually had gone back in time and so forth because, you know, we, we knew Al and we knew where he was born and we knew how old he was. So, But then he developed this incredible kind of, uh, of story and found evidence. Uh, he went to um, the man he claims to be hometown. He said that people recognized him. He found photographs and so forth. And, you know, this is... This is just wild enough to be, you know, true, but at the, at the same time, and and you know, people can make of it what they will. But I mean, it just totally surprised. I mean, it would, you know, I've been writing about UFOs as as, as long as as you've known me, and 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 so have you. And it, Gene, if you and I suddenly came forward and say, well. Folks, you know, we really are from uh, another planet, and we're here Speak to study you. Speak for yourself, my friend. <laughs> I mean, but, but, you know, a lot of people would believe us, right? I think so. They might believe you more than me. I don't think well, I can yeah, I'll, it. Well, I've never told this on the air. I, I, for 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. 
Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You what? Let me have you hold that thought. Tell our listeners there in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're talking to Brad Steiger, prolific author of many, many books, including the recently published Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the complete dossier with his wife, Sherry Steiger. Tell us. Okay. When I was lecturing, you know, when I used to be out once a week at least, you know, all over the country, coast to coast, I think it was probably in Atlanta. I saw this woman in the audience. I, I just noticed her because she was right up front and, and she seemed to be really demonstrative and so forth, so I took notice of her. Then uh, it was like Detroit. There she was. In the front. Then it was New York. There she was. And then, you know, and it seemed everywhere I was and giving a lecture, she's there in the front row just, just looking at me, just studying me. And I, I'm almost thinking, you know, is this a stalker? I mean, what's coming? So finally... I get a request. This is when I was living in Phoenix. Could I have an interview? I'm with station so-and-so-and-so-and-so. And I said, sure, sure. Come into the office. Sat down, and she had her tape recorder, and then she says, now, before we tape this, she says, I've, I've been studying you. I've been following you ever since Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> I said, yeah, I kind of noticed that. And she said, please tell me, tell me, and I won't tell anyone else. You really are an alien, aren't you? Now, I was so tempted to say, Yes, indeed, you have found my true identity. (laughs) Now you must go to the mothership and be gone forever. You could have also sounded like a toothbrush, an electric toothbrush, and said, Exterminate! Forget it. You know, I, I was so tempted. And I said, No. She says, but I know you are. The minute I saw you walk out on stage, I knew you were from another world. Well, I can take that as a compliment or or that maybe I just look weird. But um, people would believe. So, again, it's kind of uh, a thing with uh, my good friend Al, who I I think the world of, uh, when he declares he's with, you know, people, many, many people find it not unbelievable. We know we have strange physics coming to fruition every day, things that we scoffed at. I mean, we don't need to go on and talk about computers. I mean, even 2000 Space Odyssey, you know, uh, even the master portrayed Hal as being as big as the whole darn ship. And now we have computers, you know, the size of our palm that will do what Hal was doing in outer space. So that opens the door for all kinds of things to be true. 
Well, certainly we don't have a HAL, thank heavens. Even we have smaller computers, but definitely <laughs> it makes things strange. So now that you know this guy, Al, for so many years, and do you think it's something he just did to get a little notoriety, or do you think he actually believed it? No, I, I have to say, and, you know, I'm not claiming to be have incredible insights into the hearts and minds of men, but... Like uh, the shadow. <laughs> right. I didn't... I guess you are old enough to remember the shadow. But <laughs> at any rate, I, I think Al is guileless. I mean, I, I really do. I, I, I don't think he... Hmm, this is a good idea to get notoriety and to become famous. I, 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 I think he truly believes. Now, it can be that he immersed himself so deeply, so thoroughly into a subject that he just made that psychic switch. Uh, and, and I'm not going to make any judgment because I'm, I'm not a psychotherapist and, and I wouldn't, you know, just, just dare to do that with anybody or want to do that with anybody. But, uh, I, I don't think he's, He's not a deceitful person. He's not a bad person. He's not someone who would lie. Al has to totally, completely believe this. And, you know, Al, if you ever hear this, you know, I, I'm not saying you're making it up. I'm just saying you shocked us. You surprised us. Let's go into the other shocking aspect. They mentioned scientists who were involved. One of them, Nikola Tesla. Gets some kind of paranormal aspect to what he did, who he was. Now, we've all heard about Tesla in school, studying scientists of the early part of the 20th century. So let's compare the official Nikola Tesla to the unofficial. Let's talk about the official. What did he do that got so much notoriety? What he did to get notoriety, of course, is come up with a, a system that would have put Westinghouse and General Electric and, and every other conventional uh, power source uh, out of business. It, it's a, a method, you know, that it's just free energy, free energy. And he demonstrated, you know, that, that this could be obtained, that this could be acquired. Now, the unconventional, and, and you said get the paranormal into it, is according to people who knew him and according to some of his notes, where did he get this information? From intelligences from outer space, whom he believed that as he looked at sometimes through his telescope and sometimes not, that he heard these voices describing all these incredible scientific breakthroughs. And one of them, and which we have in conspiracies and secret societies, was his incredible formulation of the death ray or of, of a device which people swear would work, and let's hope for all of our sakes no one ever does it, that it could literally split the entire planet apart with its power because it just it would just go from atom to atom and, and just, I mean, it really would be the ultimate death ray, the ultimate bomb. I mean, he created these things. He had the plans for them. Many of his papers have disappeared after his death, which uh, there again, you know, to, to die alone in this apartment uh, in New York after some of his most uh, astonishing experiments. Some people feel it was a hit from the big power companies. Others feel it was because of the uh, Philadelphia experiment. 
but he certainly was a man who died way before his time, before he should have, I mean, by, by the normal scale of longevity. How old was he? How did he die? I recall he was only in his 40s, and, he, and his means of death, that's kind of a mystery, too. It, it's one of those, uh, you know, where, in a sense, the body's taken away and done away with before an autopsy can be performed. Hmm. Typical three men in black scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. That kind of thing. But are you saying his notes definitely said that he felt he was in contact with alien intelligences? Yes, and there, there have been... Uh, a number of people who claim to have uh, access to many of these notes have published books uh, saying, you know, and, and, and many people, many people who claim to have known him. I've heard it from numerous people who said that uh, he made no secret, just as Edison made no secret of believing that he could contact the dead and that he was creating an electronic device wherein we could hear their voices. Now, of course, it's called EVP, electronic voice phenomenon. People are doing it on their recorders all the time. But Edison actually had the plans, and, you know, if he would have lived longer, he did not die at, at a youthful age, of course. But if he had lived a bit longer, would we have had communication with the other side uh, years ago? And, of course, this other person that we all know who did live to a ripe old age, Albert Einstein. He was supposedly uh -huh. part of the Philadelphia experiment. Now, we know he made some great scientific breakthroughs. Now, is there any paranormal aspect to him or his work? I, I think just his philosophy. He seems to be an individual, you know, that atheists seem to admire saying, you know, he, he was atheistic, but then those of people of faith say, but he, again, he emphasized over and over you know, the unknown and the sense of mystery and how, how humankind must have a sense of mystery. So I think the philosophical aspects of Einstein probably have never received the attention that they should. And, and, and most remarkable man, again, who as a youth was considered a dullard, never considered that he would amount to anything type of thing, who goes on then to become one of the greatest physicists of all time, so that we speak of Newtonian physics and Einsteinian physics, and now we're up to quantum mechanics physics. How likely is it that he and Tesla got together as part of this Philadelphia experiment? I, I don't think, Gene, that anyone's really proven that ever happened. Uh -huh. I, I think that's part, you know, when there's history and the legend, print the legend. I think that's a good example of that. It, I think it seemed as though they should have got together. You know, just like Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane, it just seems as though they should have got together. And we've seen movie after movie of their love affair, and yet historians say if they even knew each other, it was just in passing. Isn't it strange, though, what makes things so difficult to understand about history, real or imagined, conspiratorial, whatever, is that we debate what happened last week. We've got talking heads on CNN and Fox News telling us what happened last week that we all saw. We all saw this event on 24-hour cable news, and now we have the talking heads telling us different stories about it. How the heck are we going to figure out what happened 60 or 70 years ago? It uh, makes it difficult. Yeah. Impossible. I, I think we cannot deny the subjectivity of, of everything around us, that we do siphon it through our own sensory apparatus and data, 
And, you know, two people can hear a joke. Two people can see a, a, an automobile accident. Two people and have varying interpretations of what happened. So as you say, when we have several million or billion people, and history, you know, the old saw we've, we've heard so long is that it really is his story. It's the story of whoever won or whoever was the prevailing force who had the greatest influence at the time, whose story we have as the official record. Now, with the, uh, I think it's very interesting, with the new book, The Conspiracy, I've done a lot of programs uh, from southern uh, uh, radio stations. And of course, you know, we just can't avoid bringing up the Civil War. And again, the interpretations as to, you know, what happened and why. And that's really what got me started. When I was 11 years old, at least, the book that became Conspiracies and Secret Societies. I became a history buff. I was a history major in college. I am fascinated by history and then trying to find out what really happened. And you know, it is darn near impossible because of the subjectivity of our own experiential interpretations of what we see. Our backgrounds determine so much what we see and what we remember. That's just extraordinary. So, you know, in the 60s, people were going around saying, create your own reality. And I'd say, well, that's great unless you're in the elevator and it snaps. I mean, your own reality that you don't want to crash, well, probably won't make too much difference. But by the same token, we do every day, truly, each individual, we do create our own interpretation of reality or what is real or what is meaningful to us. And maybe that's where the Philadelphia experiment revives. That's where it lies, somebody's rendition of a reality that maybe in the greater part of things doesn't really exist, but still is very fascinating. Yeah, it, it, it has, and I know this is a cliche, Gene, but I know you will agree in, in this case, this has attained a life of its own. This has attained a reality of its own. And I know that sometime after people are listening to this, both of us will probably get emails from someone whose uncle, father, brother, cousin, whatever, was involved in the experiment. Again, thank you very much. Brad Steiger, who, with his wife Sherry, wrote Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier, and you'll read about the Philadelphia Experiment and lots of other stuff there. Brad, thanks for joining us on the Always podcast. Always my pleasure, Gene. Thank you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.